And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth. Bruce Anderson is coming right up. And hello once again. Wednesday means Bruce Anderson, as you know, and Bruce is in Ottawa today. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. Um, I guess we're all still in shock and probably will be for some time about what happened over the weekend. Uh, what fits into our discussion is this whole issue of, well, smoke mirrors and the truth is disinformation. And we're seeing that play out. We talked about it yesterday, some on the Canadian angle about, uh, you know, whether or not we're, there'd been a G7 meeting when, in fact, there'd never been a G7 meeting. It had been this quint meeting of the of five nations that had nuclear uh, issues attached to them, of which Canada is not a member. Um, there was the issue about the Canadian embassy. And as I said yesterday, there is no doubt, there is absolutely no doubt that some people did end up with a voicemail. Um, now, whether that was just problems with the phone system at the embassy... Uh, in uh, Israel or not, uh, that appears to be what it was, and that's fine. But nevertheless, there was some confusion around that issue and some disinformation around that issue as the opposition party tried to play it for whatever they thought it was worth, both those issues. But the bigger disinformation question may well be relate back to, um, to Mr. Musk, Elon Musk, and X, formerly known as Twitter, you want to leap into this? Yeah, there's a lot to go around in terms of uh, concerns about this. I think what we've known for some time, Peter, is that the uh, the potential for large numbers of people to be terribly misled, intentionally misled by bad actors was there. What we're seeing in real time right now is that when you have a crisis, uh, when the risk of really hot takes in a really dangerous world escalates. Um, we don't seem very equipped as a society or maybe even more broadly as a civilization to protect ourselves from the negative effects of that. Now, that's a pretty bleak way to start this conversation today, but I don't find that there's much good news out there uh, around this. I think the uh, the latest piece that I was reading this morning was about a letter from the European commissioner uh, or a European commissioner to Elon Musk saying that they had been reviewing the content that had been shared on X or Twitter, as most people still call it, I think, about the situation in Israel and, and Gaza and had found a number of instances where there was misinformation, disinformation, and uh, they, the EU has the power to fine uh, Musk uh, very significantly, I think 6% of revenues. And so it's a pretty clear shot across his bow to get control of the platform to deal with it, the situation that the uh, EU is describing. And of course, in the midst of all of that, Elon Musk had been tweeting about information on sites that are known uh, for ha hosting disinformation in the past. So in the earlier world, the pre-X world, 
um, we all saw legacy media, what are called legacy media now, provide us with pictures and commentary and analysis of what's going on. That's still happening, but it feels to me like it's being swamped by um, these online platforms distributing pieces of um, content which are intended, it seems, to give people uh, false information and to excite um, animosity, hostility, outrage. Um, and it's not its not at all clear where it's coming from or how many different sources it's coming from or how many different agendas are being played into. But it's certainly taking a very dangerous and volatile situation and making it more dangerous, I think. This uh, such a mix of disinformation, misinformation, and just outright garbage on uh, some of the social media channels. Um, you know, I, I, I guess we each have to come up with our own way of, of, of dealing with that. I mean, I get asked at a lot of, you know, speeches uh, and and public events. Just the other day I was at one where I was asked again, like, what do we do? How do we deal with this? And I... I, you know, I'm never quite sure how to answer it. You can't just say, ignore it, don't, you know, like, don't read it or get off Twitter or threads or whatever it is you use, uh, because they actually do provide a service in terms of, you know, uh, good media connections and the ability to read good stories. I mean, I, I, ch- I, I tend to trust a the mail that comes in to me more than I do, the comments that I see on, uh, occasionally see, because I just stopped looking at a lot of this crap. Um, but I, I do read the stuff that comes in to me and uh, from listeners to the podcast or to the Series XM edition. And it's pretty good. It, you know, it's pretty constructive. I don't agree with it all the time. They certainly don't agree with me. But it's thoughtful in terms of uh, what's written. It's not... You know, it's it's not from an angle or, or a deliberate angle or an angle to try and, uh, um, you know, spread disinformation. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the advice is here. I'm not even sure myself what the, the best route to follow in terms of dealing with um, social media and trying to prevent disinformation from crawling into our headspace. I mean, like, what do you do? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, look, I mean, I, I am a person who relies on um, X as a source of news. Um, so it's a real uh, hazard uh, in the sense of if I trusted everything I saw, I'd be trusting a lot of stuff that isn't true. On the other hand, as a way for people who are interested in current events and in the moment information, it's better than turning on CNN. There is more information flowing more quickly from a variety of different sources and perspectives than you can get anywhere else. Some people will say they prefer Facebook, but I'm not sure that Facebook, um, I'm not sure Facebook has as many downside risks as, as X does, but uh, I also think X has more information coming at me more quickly. Now, what do I try to do? I try to, um, look at the author of a piece of content or a tweet and say, well, do they have an interest in giving me the, the accurate information? Or are they potentially have an interest in giving me inaccurate information? Good example was Pierre Polyev tweeting 
about this meeting of uh, of the countries um, that are known as Quint. He didn't, maybe he didn't know what that meeting was or what that group was or the background to it and the fact that all of the, comp- the countries in there share in common, the fact that they either have nuclear weapons or they host nuclear weapons, American nuclear weapons on their soil. And of course, if you're President Biden and you want to send a signal to Iran um, and your particular signal is we have nukes and we know you have nukes and you're maybe thinking about or threatening about using them, but understand we're alert to this. That's what I interpret it. So if I'm somebody who's not putting a skeptical lens on what Pierre Polyev said, which is that these countries met and Justin Trudeau was left out of the con- uh, of the conversation, an attempt to kind of embarrass um, the liberal leader, I might believe, okay, this is another example of Canada maybe losing some stature on the stage. Well, so applying that lens of, do I really think Pierre Polyev has a personal agenda here, a political agenda? That's helpful. Um, another example for me would be Alex Panetta, a journalist that we, we've we talked about before and, and admire his work. Alex was one of the first to raise the question when this communique came out, why wasn't Canada involved? Now, to his credit, we dug around on it a little bit more information came out and he took down his tweet and he acknowledged that he took down his tweet. So trusting the platform that he works for is an important thing for me, CBC. Um, I believe that that's an organization which on most days tries to get it right. Um, No, I shouldn't say that that way. On most days gets it right on all days, tries to get it right. Um, But there's no question that uh, there's a ricochet effect when somebody puts something in the marketplace that's kind of exciting, that's um, that's stimulating, that causes rage. And you and I exchanged um, a clip about Keir Starmer, the UK Labour leader, and in this in this clip, which more than a million people saw in a very short period of time. Uh, it was apparent that the voice of Keir Starmer uh, in conversation with his staffers was bullying and berating them and cursing them out. And it now appears that that wasn't him, that that was artificial intelligence generated content meant to spoil the moment about, at, at which he came forward with a major speech a, a kind of a defining speech for the next year or so. And, I think people looking at that are are kind of wondering, well, how are we going to keep things like that from unduly affecting our political choices? And I think the answer is, we don't know. Uh, We don't really have the ideas. We don't have the the consensus on how to do it. Part of it is ethical. Part of it is technological. um, And the ability of the bad actors to outrace the good actors is pretty clear every day. Let me make a couple of points. Um, first, just to go back a bit on the on the Five Nations thing, what's known as Quint. I'd never heard of them before. I, I'd never heard of that organization. And I don't think it's commonly talked about. We don't talk about it like we talk about NATO or NORAD or 
the UN, G7, right? G7, G20. Uh, quaint. It's a new one. It's a new one for me, anyway. Um, that's that. The the Kirstarmer thing, I think, is really is really interesting for us to talk about for a minute because. Starmer, who's, as you said, the labor leader in Britain, who's enjoying at the moment a, about a 20-point lead in the public opinion surveys uh, for the next election uh, in Britain over the uh, Conservatives and Rishi Sunak. Um, so this is, you know, remember what we used to call, it sounds kind of quaint now, the Dirty Tricks campaigns. Remember, you know, Nixon ran them in, 72. Wag the dog, yeah. Wag the dog in, uh, through the uh, Clinton years and, you know, they're, they're in the Reagan years. The, these things, um, you know, they, they were not very subtle, uh, but they had a real impact on the politics of the day. Well, we're into a whole new era now because of, you know, AI. And I'll give you credit. You know, as, as I so often do, it was, a, I think it was almost a year ago or more where you said, we've got to watch how this is going to impact. And I mean, we were having one of our discussions about AI and you said, we got to watch how this is going to impact politics um, in, in many parts of the world, including uh, the U.S. and Canada. And in fact, it's starting to do that. This is the first example in Britain of what they call deep fake using AI, you know, to basically alter the, not alter the voice, but alter the speech of a, of a leading politician uh, to make him sound like he didn't sound um, in terms of what he was saying, not, not the actual quality of his voice. But um, apparently very easy to do. Now, that came from somewhere. Was it just a, you know, was it something uh, done outside of the political arena or was it something done inside the political arena by the, the dirty tricks campaigners of their day? Uh, are people working on s similar kinds of things in our country? Uh, south of the border, I'm, you know, like I can't believe they're not. I'm sure they are because the technology exists and apparently it's not that hard to use. The question of whether to pull a trigger and actually use it in a campaign is probably taken at a whole different level than those who are making the stuff up. Um, but now it's there. It's in play. We've seen it happen in Britain. How soon we end up seeing it happen here, if we not have already seen it happen. Um, but as you warned us a year ago, this could have a real damaging effect on the political uh, debate inside the political arena uh, in our country just as easily as it did uh, in Britain. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think there's two categories of concern from my standpoint, and I'm really just beginning to kind of understand the different dimensions of this, and I'm, I'm spending more and more time trying to figure it out. Um, <clears throat> one is what you know people might call misinformation or disinformation, where different stakeholders or platforms or organizations are pushing information into the market that they believe is true, even though it isn't, or that they know isn't true, but they want people to kind of consume it. Um, 
you know, good example for me is this this whole kerfuffle about whether the embassy in in Israel was open or closed, working or not working, and and in the world of hot takes, when people are are kind of angry and stressed, and um, uh, their ability to kind of take a piece of information from an MP, Melissa Lansman. Um, that says a hundred people contacted my office and and said that the embassy's not working. You ask me what's the advice that I follow try to follow. I would read something like that and say, well, I I don't in I don't intuitively believe that nobody was working at the embassy. I can't imagine that. Oh, the phone lines there would be overwhelmed. I can't imagine that the way that the federal government approached it would be to have an incident response line, a 1-800 number, essentially, uh, back in Ottawa, where they have a whole team whenever there's a crisis that can handle the large volume of information and provide a single point of entry, which they used X and other platforms, I guess, to try to get out. But so there was a whole bunch of misinformation and disinformation about that. Some of it, I think, intentionally uh, dishonest. Some of it, I think, just um, people being worried and expressing their frustrations and their concerns. And the challenge for government is people don't want to wait uh, an hour, four hours, a day, half a day to get the information. Just like right now, uh, the government has said, we're going to send CAF planes and we're going to bring people out who need to come out. I can imagine that today these platforms are going to be filled with what time are the planes coming? And I have some empathy for people in government who are trying to figure these things out and move at the fastest speed that they can. So that's a whole area of, of commotion and chaos that is much harder for institutions and politicians. And it will be just the same if the conservatives win the election, uh, they'll be faced with the same set of dynamics um, and so it isn't really a partisan thing. It's more we we need to kind of wrap our heads around the instinct for hyper-fast reaction, uh, both on the part of an audience and on the part of the institutions that we're talking about. But then AI comes along and takes what the bad actors want to do and kind of adds a nuclear energy uh, level component to it, just makes it possible for... Uh, uh, a bad idea to become a dangerous idea much more quickly, much more pervasively. And you kind of lump into that the fact that what we would have counted on in the past is a world order where the leading countries in the world would all get together and say, we can't do this. Um, we're now staring at the prospect of potentially another uh, Donald Trump presidency. And uh, just this week, he was giving a speech, I think it was in New Hampshire, and he was talking about this conspiracy theory uh, of uh, Barack Obama really being the president right now um, because there was some video clip of Obama a few years ago deadpanning with Stephen Colbert saying, you know, in an ideal world, I, you know, there'd be an earpiece in the, in the president's ear and I'd just call the shots and nobody would know. Well, Trump has turned that into uh, a theme in his speeches and dollars to donuts. There are people out there who go, I knew that was happening. I knew that Biden wasn't the real president that Obama is last point. 
you know, you and I have seen third party candidates in the U.S. political system uh, in the past. People like Ross Perot. I think there was a guy named John Anderson. They all come from a kind of a quirky, uh, slightly off center point of view. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I saw a poll yesterday or a series of polls that that had him as a third party candidate, maybe with as much as 15, 17, 19 percent of the vote. Now, his whole campaign is based on anti-vax. I would consider it disinformation. We probably have some listeners who will find that um, uh, obnoxious in terms of their own perspective on vaccines but his campaign seems to be built on the fact that he has that famous name even though his siblings as you will have seen put out a statement the other day when he announced that he was going to be a third party candidate and said we don't agree with him on any of this he does share our name but not our values Um, but it's a sign of the times that a third party candidate has risen to prominence based on the disinformation effects of the anti-vax movement um, and has the potential uh, to really disrupt uh, the U.S. political situation. And so when we look around the world for those institutional, political, geopolitical guardrails, it's hard to see where they're going to be. And we uh, we need conservatives in this country to work together with liberals and new Democrats to keep this from becoming a bigger problem in our society. We don't need them. Uh, We don't need any party in Canada to try to profit from the opportunity that artificial intelligence brings to uh, political advantage. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we're we're going to pick up more on on this question because I think it's really interesting, and and it's, well, it's timely for a lot of reasons, but we're heading into a a highly... um, tense period of politics in a number of different countries, including ours, where a lot of this is going to come into play and have an impact on the way we think, what we do, how we, what we say, how we vote. All has that potential. So um, we'll talk about all of that uh, when we come back. Recording in progress. And hello there, Peter Vansbridge here. And uh, you're listening to Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, the Wednesday episode of The Bridge. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Vansbridge in Toronto. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. And normally, you would have been watching, some of you, on our YouTube channel, but I forgot to push the button on the first half of our program today. And so we're just getting the second half of it on our YouTube channel. If you're watching this on the YouTube channel, know that the first half, a really good discussion, uh, is available uh, on our podcast platform and you can download it to hear it. But you get to, to watch us now. Uh, for the second half, which is still on the same issue of disinformation and misinformation, um, conspiracy theories, how to handle it all uh, in a period of, well, 
we call this program Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, and there's a lot of it in all of this. Uh, and it does come back to, to that question. You know, we've had uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, as you know, uh, Bruce, on this program a number of times in the last six months, talking about the work that she and her colleagues from all parties are trying to do in determining how AI is going to be kind of monitored, even regulated in Canada, and whether there should be certain, you know, safety uh, precautions put in, uh, especially on the political front, uh, as you head in towards uh, election campaigns. And I'm not sure how how that would work, how that would even be monitored, if in fact that was the direction we ended up going. Um, there is such a thing in in Britain, but didn't seem to prevent what happened on Keir Starmer. Um, so I don't know. Where's your head on? Yeah, we on certainly that? learned from the effort that was made in the last election to monitor and report on the Chinese interference question. We learned that we are nowhere near um, where we should be in terms of the ability to spot these efforts and nowhere near where we need to be in terms of the ability to have a public discussion. Um, in effect, and I don't think this was the intention behind the way that that effort was designed, but I think it was designed to keep from talking about interference unless the authorities who were looking at the evidence were convinced that interference was so great, so pervasive, that it was going to change the outcome. Now, I can understand the logic behind that, the idea that you don't elevate uh, something so that it becomes a political issue in and of itself <clears throat> if it's not going to have a material impact. But the problem with that approach is, well, who gets to decide? Uh, what's a material impact? And what if we don't talk about this more? What if more people don't become more anxious that they're being misinformed, that they're being told lies, that they're being convinced of things that aren't uh, true or or perhaps uh, relevant to their concerns? The potential to do that is much greater, much more quickly than it ever has been before. And we have a a chasm in terms of uh, policy in the area of politics and what are we going to do about it and will we talk about it or will we not talk about it and um, i think given that we have minority government uh, in ottawa we could have an election at any time and i don't think we're better equipped to deal with this issue than we were in the last election and we were poorly equipped to deal with it then um so we we do need politicians like Michelle Rempel-Garner and others to step forward, to use their share of voice, to call attention to this risk, and to try to come up with solutions that won't be perfect, that won't be agreed to by everybody, but at least will represent a more significant and useful starting point than what we have right now, which for most reasonable people, if they're paying any attention to this, is quite worrisome, and it should be worrisome. Do you think they they care? I mean, there's so much on the plate right now in terms of issues that uh, should be, and not necessarily are, but should be uh, dominating the uh, discussions that take place in Ottawa, either around the cabinet table or around the 
caucus table or in the House of Commons. Um, yeah, I got the sense, I certainly got it from the first time we talked to uh, Michelle Rempel, which was know, about six or seven months ago, that it just, there were, there, A, there wasn't a lot of knowledge uh, on the part of the 330 whatever MPs in the House of Commons about AI and the, the impact it could have, the bad impacts that it could have. Um, and while there's more now than there was then in terms of knowledge, there's still doesn't seem to be a front burner issue. No, it's not. It's not a front burner issue. There is work going on in the background uh, in government. I think that's good. I think that, um, but I think there's a difference between public policy, the role of government and artificial intelligence, which is a big and important set of subjects. Um, and uh, and the combat of politics, the combat of politics is not going to be easily regulated um, through broad public policy. The federal government is seeing just how difficult it is to get across the finish line with some of the bills that they put in place or been trying to put in place for several years. Now, I don't think those bills are uh, particularly well designed. I also think that the initial design gets dated very quickly. So now you've got a situation where the government is being accused, I think quite falsely, of trying to censor uh, what people can traffic as information on the Internet. I don't think that's right. I think it's disinformation. I think it's deliberate disinformation. But I also understand that the level of trust of anybody in this area is not what it should be or used to be or needs to be in order for people to say, okay, put in some policies that help protect us all and help create a conversation that's safe and productive for us. People won't agree about that. I had uh, people on uh, Twitter. I'm going to keep calling it Twitter because I, I I don't know why it would be called X. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. But last night we were kind of debating um, kind of ridiculous things. Um, and it just reminded me of this poll that we did a little while ago, and you'll remember this, I think, that you know, 20% of Canadians don't think that humans landed on the moon, that, that there's lots of people who have come to believe things that aren't true. Politicians know this. They see the evidence. But to your point, they've got so many other things on their to-do list, and it's not clear that if you did care about this, what you could do about it. Uh, it's almost like everybody is looking around the world and saying, well, somebody please come up with an idea that we can uh, hang our hats on. And uh, maybe that will happen over time. I feel like it was easier to imagine that it will happen before <clears throat> what I generally think of as the world order seemed to be breaking down. But it's also true that at the end of the day, the the question of whether or not you can legislate or regulate ethical behavior um, is a pretty open question. You can try. You should try uh, in some cases. But if people want to do unethical things uh, and don't feel any sanction uh, for doing those, this is the point for politicians, I think, then they will. Um so I think we need to make sure that we have a, a good read on the technology, good ideas on the regulatory side, 
and we need a conversation about ethics uh, that is a kind of a recurring conversation where people keep on reminding themselves that if everybody chose to do the unethical things that were available to them to, to press the argument that they believe in, we'd all end up in a pretty pretty sorry place. You know, I'm, uh, I was at the University of Toronto yesterday at the Monk School um, with John Ibbotson, uh, who's got a new book out called The Duel, which is about, it just came out yesterday, and I was interviewing him uh, in front of an audience uh, about this new book. And it, it, The Duel is about the Diefenbaker-Pearson years, basically the 10th decade of Canadian politics from the kind of mid-50s to the mid-60s. And it's a, I really recommend it. It's a fascinating book. And, you know, I grew up during that period, thought I knew it pretty well, but there's lots in this book that I hadn't realized. But one of the things I was looking at was the kind of issues they were both these men, which is really the only period in Canadian political history where there have been basically two dynamic personalities on either side of the house who, who were right through that that period that decade um and you you know both had their time in office as prime minister both had their time in office as opposition leaders but you looked at the issues of the day and the, and the way they in fact changed canada uh, as a result of the um their positions on on, on different issues but i look, look at that and i then i look at what we're going through today and, you know, I look at a picture of, you know, Trudeau and Polyev and Singh together, and I wonder, like, why would anybody even want to try and lead right now? Because there's such an array of issues on the table. I mean, look at it. You've got just in the recent weeks, you've got the Canada-India issue. You've got the guy in the house issue. Now you've got a, 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 a Middle East war going on against all the other things that are constants in our lives right now, a housing crisis unlike anything we faced before, um, inflation, food prices, grocery prices, uh, you've got a war in Ukraine, you've got uh, an, un, uh, an uneasy uh, segment of the population that uh, demonstrate and, you know, truck convoys and anti-vax and this and that and the other. There are so many issues in front of uh, the political leaders of the day, and they seem to change like you're you're watching a pinball machine, right? It, it just sort of they one bounces off the other. There was one day you're on this, the next day you're on that, and they're totally separate, and and nothing seems to be getting resolved. It's sort of like a crisis of issues. No matter who you are, which side you're on, nothing seems to be happening. Now, people would say, okay, this is a time for real leadership. People have to step forward, deal with these issues one by one or a number at a time. Uh, I, I, you know, sometimes I get, I get carried away with the moment and not realize that, sure, there have been moments like this before, but, man, I can't think of anywhere there were so many, so many, you know, didn't mention a bunch, you know, climate change, energy prices, all of this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff yeah. there. There's a lot of stuff. 
and one of the things that I think is um, kind of unique in all of that is that for most of my life, maybe all of it, um, the role that the United States played uh, in kind of modulating, organizing conversations wasn't always perfect, wasn't always right, wasn't always um, appropriate, but it was always there. And you kind of understood America to be a, um, a mostly stabilizing force, uh, a, an authority that could bring parties together to try to reduce tensions, to try to point the world in a safer direction. Now, I, even as I say that, I sound like I'm kind of glorifying the past role of the United States. But really, the point I'm trying to make is that right now, the rest of the world looks at the United States, if they're paying close attention, as a bit of a failed democracy. Um, it's got uh, two competitors for the highest office, neither of which uh, is well regarded by the broad public, both of whom are seen as past their prime. Uh, to put it nicely, and in the case of Trump, uh, for many people, he's not just past his prime, he's just unfit for office on any, by any measure. Of course, we got other people who, who think he's, he's the savior of the world and the savior of America. But what does that mean in the end? Well, right now we're seeing um, the Trump effect, which isn't really about him so much personally, although he's been the leader of it, but it's been about this idea that you can say the most outrageous thing and people will gravitate towards it um, if they have enough sense of grievance. And if you say it in a way that feels um, familiar and resonant to them. And so the Republicans in Congress um, can't figure out who their leader's going to be because they can't figure out whether they want to try to play a more I don't even want to say moderate because I don't think you could look at McCarthy and say that he was really a moderate, but a more moderate or you want a more disruptive and radical voice where uh, America is constantly faced with a new deadline about whether or not it's going to fund the functions of government. You've got vacant positions across the top ranks of the military because one senator is holding up the process by which those positions would be filled. Even in the context of this conflagration in the Middle East, he's saying, no, I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to let uh, the president uh, appoint uh, senior officials to the military. And his party seems powerless to rein this guy in. You've got um, a, a, a sense that there's no ability to kind of control the dialogue uh, or to steer the dialogue to a safe place. And you've got um, a majority of Americans now saying, and a large majority of Republicans saying, let's not send any more money to Ukraine, uh, which is exactly, I'm sure, what Putin has been waiting for, expecting to happen, and will now be taking advantage of. So I know I've just added to the list of, of headaches that you described, but for me... Um, the shakiness of NATO caused by the United States, the shakiness of the world order caused by a kind of a breakdown in the U.S. political consensus of how to deal with Russia, how to deal with China, uh, how to deal with their own internal divisions. Um, we need 
uh, steadying leadership here in Canada. From whatever side of the aisle, we need steadying leadership and we need people not to be trying to uh, provoke divisions uh, for the sake of political advantage. And um, I hope we get it. Who's the great leader out there right now? I'm not, I'm not talking about just Canada or the United States or anywhere. Like on the stage, there's always been at least one, if not more than one, of the international leaders you kind of look up to and say, that's a leader, right? I'm not sure you, you got that anymore. I mean, you got Netanyahu is, you know, been around forever, um, is facing corruption trials, is facing a divided country on the, the issues of change he wants to make to the judiciary, basically to save his own hide. Now trying to lead a country and a, a you know, a government uh, made up of all sides through a terrible situation. Um, but, you know, I couldn't tell you the name of the German leader after Angela Merkel. I probably should know that, but I can't because it hasn't had an impression on upon me yet. Britain's been in turmoil for some time on the leadership front. America is America. Um yeah, no, I, I think there is who, no who obvious is answer to your question. There isn't. And um, <clears throat> you you were saying this before, but it's hard to imagine why people who have a you know reasonable life and, a, and, and some accomplishments outside of politics would do, decide to step in uh, to politics now. But we need people to do that, and we need to create a better blend of um, criticism, constructive criticism and acceptance of, uh, of the fact that they're doing jobs that are difficult and, uh, and that sometimes they need to make choices that aren't perfect uh, and that compromise isn't, you know, a bad idea. Usually it's what our democracies are built to try to do. Um, and, and uh, so, you know, in my spare time, I do try to encourage more people to get involved in politics and to to help create a next generation of uh, of leaders. And I know you do the same thing, too, uh, but we all need to take a pause in the relentless criticism of people in public life, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on. Um, unless they're bad actors, in which case we need to call them out. We need to make sure that it's a safe and more productive place for people who are trying to do a good job. Okay, we're going to leave it at that, at least from the two of us. I know that you, uh, many of you out there, uh, will have views on uh, the various things we've discussed today. Uh, so drop me a line at the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you include your name and where you're writing from. Love to hear from you. Try and get them in today. Uh, we'll see what makes it on the uh, Your Turn program tomorrow, along with the Random Ranter. And for those of you who are watching on YouTube, sorry, my fault, my bad, my incompetence for not pushing the button on time uh, to get the first half. But once again, uh, if you uh, are watching and you saw the second half, you can get the first half uh, on our uh, podcast platform. Uh, so thank you, Bruce. Bruce will be back on uh, Friday for a good talk with Chantal Hebert. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with uh, your turn. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. 
Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again in 24 hours. 